their typical rainbow, now with new theme music. I'm Paul. And I'm Grant. So, if you are a listener of our previous season, welcome back. If you are new to the podcast, welcome! Uh, We have an entire season's worth of episodes uh, before this, so feel free to check them out. Uh, You can find them on uh, acast.com, on our homepage, just search for The Atypical Rainbow, or wherever you get good podcasts. To keep up with uh, the release of new episodes and other interesting tidbits that we might feel like posting, please make sure you subscribe uh, or follow us at The Atypical Rainbow on Facebook or Instagram. And please make sure you share any links to our episodes so that other people can discover how wonderful we think we are. So, today, uh, we are going to start a new series called Atypical Philosophy. This is going to replace what previous fans would have known as Gaily Life, largely because I personally felt that we sort of took certain topics, really broad topics, that weren't specific to being gay, and I thought, let's expand it all out a little bit. Uh, Today, we're going to talk about identity. What defines you? What parts of your personality are the things that are most important to you? Um... And this came about for me because I was thinking about the identity of this podcast. One of the things that I've said in previous episodes is that autism for me has actually played a really big role in my life. I didn't know it before I got diagnosed, but certainly since I've been diagnosed, everything I experience and all everything I do seems to be filtered through the lens of autism. I can kind of see, well, some of my food fanaticism is autism related and some of my more obsessive tendencies that I've had in the past actually were autism and weren't about, you know, any anxiety that I was experiencing. Obviously mixed in a little bit both, but autism really influenced it to a great degree. So... To start off with, I guess I want to tell my story about how I ended up getting diagnosed in the first place. I've mentioned it a few times, if you're a previous listener, where I got diagnosed as an adult. I think my whole life I've always felt a little bit different, a little bit socially awkward, but thankfully through my circumstances, through chance encounters with good friends, it never really became a problem. But uh, in my uh, late teens and early 20s, I did go through a bout of anxiety and depression, largely around med school and about exam pressures and career pressures. I didn't realize at that point that I actually just wasn't very happy with what I was doing, but, you know, hey, it took me to my 30s to figure that out. Uh, and then after we had Jake and Matt, and particularly after they got diagnosed, it became abundantly clear to me that I had autism. But I remember having a conversation at my workplace talking about the topic of autism broadly and how I said I thought I was autistic. And I received this rousing chorus of, no, you're not. You can't possibly be. How would you know? Because there was still the feeling that in order to claim that identity, you needed a formal diagnosis by a medical professional. So as is want to do, I'm like, well, okay, I I would li- I do think of myself as autistic, but hey, let's get the evidence to prove it. So, you know, in my 30s, I went and I saw a psychologist, sat down with her, and basically laid out my life and all the problems I'd had up until that point. And I went through the testing, even did some IQ testing, just for the, out of interest, 120-something, yay. Uh, and she gave me the diagnosis. I mean, she was pretty, she was pretty confident of that even before the testing, but the testing just kind of proved what I had, which was level one autism, which is the the lowest of the three levels you can possibly have. But it was really validating. I got to the end, I, I got to the last session where we talked about the diagnosis and I felt relieved and I felt validated by the fact that you know, an unbiased professional was able to confirm what I'd suspected all along. And I think most 
significant thing it did for me was that it it gave me the opportunity to accept myself. Because up until then, I'd always thought maybe I was inadequate. I wasn't trying hard enough. Um, I wasn't smart enough. There was all these sort of self-doubts about why I couldn't achieve certain things, like why my memory was really shoddy, or why socialising was such an arduous task for me, or why I often, um, you know, was emotionally overreactive in a lot of situations, particularly when stressed. And all of a sudden, putting it in this framework of autism um, made me feel like... I wasn't completely to blame, that it wasn't just me not trying hard enough or me making the wrong choice, but simply that there are certain instincts that are a part of me that I can't help. And yes, it doesn't mean I shouldn't change. I mean, if it's affecting other people in a negative way, if it like if it's affecting our relationship, yeah, okay, I've got to reanalyze that and reassess that and decide, well, how do I how do I make it work so I can keep the good things in my life while still being as close to being me as possible? And, but at the same time, just knowing that and knowing that there was this sort of diagnosis to explain it just made me feel a whole lot better. Okay. So like, was it kind of an imposter thing during that point where you thought you had autism, but no one had proven it? It was that partially, but it's also the certainty thing. You know, as, as people who are uh, neurotypical are aware, you know, the certainty makes a lot of difference. Knowing things tangibly and concretely makes you feel more comfortable. Even if it's not a good thing, it's better to know than to not know. And that's that's where it came from for me. Okay. Because, like, I, I, I can completely understand that. Like, from my point of view, when I say, you know, I have autistic traits, I've never attempted to be diagnosed. So it's not that I have autistic traits, but I don't meet the diagnosis because I don't know. Mm. But I guess for me, I'm okay with just knowing who I am, knowing that some things are hard for me, knowing that I don't like to go to nightclubs, which does not have much of an effect on my life. Yeah. Uh, these days. <laughs> yeah. That, yeah, some, that some things are hard for me. And I, I guess that's part of my identity just as Grant, rather than um, needing a diagnosis to accept these parts of myself. Because these parts of myself would be true whether or not I had a diagnosis. Would you want the diagnosis, though, if it were affecting your life in a negative way or if it impacted the way your problem was managed? Yes. Like, when it comes to how a problem was managed, I would 100% agree, which I think is one of the things where we... When we first took Jake to a psychologist for anxiety and we ended up getting him diagnosed with autism, one of the main things that I talked to people about who were a bit confused about Jake being autistic or in a bit of denial about Jake being autistic because he looked at them, <laughs> which mm. is a common thing. Yes. We did as well. Like, I had a conversation with your mum where, like, we both thought it, but we didn't say it to each other. But then he looked at us, so we're like, it's okay. <laughs> He's not autistic. <laughs> but one of the things when I tried to explain why we had gone with the diagnosis, why we're labelling him and everything, was I basically said, okay, he is anxious, we all know this, but we need to treat his anxiety in in a way by understanding its cause. That for him, it's anxiety arising from autism, not anxiety arising from like a chemical imbalance in his brain. Mm. So I agree, if you need the diagnosis to get the treatment that works for you, um, which I think is bigger probably with children, because mm. as adults we can kind of choose how 
like what sort of treatment like we can seek out psychologists who practice certain things like it may take a bit of research like me and you probably have a lot of knowledge in that area anyway mm. but i've been to psychologists who didn't suit me i've been to psychologists who did suit me um and you got I, I guess you kind of stick with the one that does suit you whereas with the kids they're not at the state where they can say this psychologist is not suiting me they're not you know i need someone who does act or cbt because they're nine <laughs> yeah uh so it's kind of relying on us to somehow pick up on that so i think for the boys it was important to have the diagnosis so that their professionals and therapists were doing early intervention in the right way and they you know they especially the anxiety was being treated correctly and i guess teachers would under like have an understanding of that whereas i don't really experience any of the problems where i need to you know justify why someone would treat me well as an adult by needing to pull out my diagnosis but but you were in a different situation because you're in a workplace where people were doubting you whereas most of the time people don't doubt me when i say i have autistic traits like i don't have people going no you don't you're a perfectly normal person <laughs> yeah but i i guess in part there's it depends on what what other people would need to change about themselves in order to interact with you, which mm. may determine the difference. So, at my workplace, part of it was just because of the industry I work in, because I because I, I work in disability. Uh, you know, they're they're very fixed on the idea of you need some supporting diagnoses. Part of that is NDIS motivated. Part of that is I think just philosophy more than anything else. But also, when it comes to a workplace, being able to give it a name, say that there's a diagnosis, then allows them an opportunity to adapt to me. Mm-hmm. So, me simply claiming to have autism uh, is is not sufficient for them to be able to then go, all right, because of your autism, we will try to adjust your work hours or your schedule or whatever in such a way that accommodates your needs. Mm-hmm. So having have in a practical sense, that's why having the diagnosis was really valuable. But just going back to the idea of psychologists, I mean, don't don't you think that even without a diagnosis, if you were able to see someone who had experience in autism, like, don't you ever think that maybe it would just make you feel more understood that you wouldn't have to try and you know elucidate all the details about your personality? Um, in order to try and make or get the psychologist to understand you as a complete person? I don't know. Like, because I think my psychologist currently probably would have that reaction. It's like, you're not autistic because, you know, you're, you know, doing well and you're not classic autistic. Mm. Um, even though she does have a lot of experience with autism. But she, yeah, I guess I feel like she treats me as a per- like a whole person and who I am and what she knows about me, because I've been seeing her for a number of years. Um, And together we've found therapies that work for me. Mm. And yeah, so the psychology that I'm getting at the moment is working for me without needing it to be autistic specific or for us to have an agreement on whether I have autism. But I guess, theoretically speaking, you might have gotten to that point faster if there had been a diagnosis. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. you, you know, you had to you have to build that rapport. You have to understand each other. And that's why you've gotten to that point. And that's great. I mean, that, that shows um, that your psychologist is clearly skillful and very considerate. And that's that, that obviously is really important when building a psychologist or therapist and patient relationship. But in a way, it's kind of like... 
I think having that kind of ba- that diagnosis gives the psychologist the opportunity to use their base knowledge. So knowing that there are going to be certain things that you are more prone to than other people, or mm-hmm. uh, or at a higher risk of experiencing compared to other people, means that it's, it's things that they can keep an eye out for. That even if it's not happening now, there are some things that that might go. Oh well, people with autism at this certain age might experience this this condition so rather than waiting till it happens kind of preemptively going let's talk a little bit about this stuff and this stuff and and get onto it early intervention mm-hmm. without necessarily you having to be a child in order to receive that early intervention yes i guess that is true um i think like obviously if a diagnosis for autism was completely free under medicare then there's probably no reason not to do it yeah that's true but the there is a cost of money and time to a mm-hmm. diagnosis yeah and I, yeah, you, I think it was the right choice for you. It was the right choice for me to make for the boys. Yeah. But I think I have, I have, I probably have more control over my interactions with people because I generally do social interactions and volunteer work as opposed to your paid work. Yeah. So, um, I think when I was, you know, doing volunteer work, if I needed someone else on the committee to help me cover a shortcoming, it was kind of like, well, no one's even paying you. It's amazing you're doing this. Mm. Feel free to ask someone to delegate off to, you know, a bit of social to the vice president. Yeah. <laughs> because my strength was more understanding how the budget worked and not so much explaining to people how the budget worked. <laughs> but yes, so I think, yeah, I, I acknowledge that I'm in a situation where it's not a problem. Like if I, I guess if I was in teaching and um, I needed to go to part-time and it was questioned why I need to go to part-time, like say due to autism, I had to go to part-time. Mm. Um, and then it might be useful to have the piece of paper to say, you know, I have a disability. So therefore you should take my desire to be part-time more seriously. It's not just me wanting to be part-time. I don't know. Yeah. Is it the only thing I can really think of my career-wise. Yeah. And even then, let's let's be clear, autism in and of itself isn't a disability. It's it but it can cause Well, issues. it's a disability in the NDIS. Yeah, I guess that's that's, that's why you get NDIS funding, whereas um like ADD is not a disability, so you don't get disability funding. Which is ridiculous. But yeah. Yeah. so when I say disability, no, it's not a judgment on the effect it has on people. It's just I mean technically it comes under disability, which means it goes under the NDIS. Yeah. Yeah. And even then, a diagnosis doesn't guarantee you NDIS funding either. No. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, they come back to function, which is you know, it's in semantics <laughs> and, and definitions and all the all the fun stuff that comes with bureaucracy and language. Yeah. I, I, move, moving away a bit from, from the autism thing, you know, thinking about identity, I had this experience the other day. I was walking uh, our new dog, Zach... And, uh, well, I was walking through the park and this guy who also had a Jack Russell came up to me and started talking about dogs. And it started with him lecturing me about how to look after Jack Russell. I'm like, okay, sure. I all took it all in good humor. And then the question came up that all Asian people know, actually probably all people of any ethnicity other than white probably experience, which is where do you come from? And he was very explicit about asking like he followed up with, "Where are you from originally?" And I'm like, yeah. you know, the the smart ass response that everyone gives is, "I'm from Australia. I was born here." But that you know, that's not the answer they're looking for, right? And this guy clearly had an intent to ask me about my ethnicity, so I told him I was Vietnamese. 
which then goes, he goes, oh, that's good. I, you know, because if you were Chinese, then I'd have to tell you off about the commu- Chinese Communist Party and about buying all our uranium and getting out of our country. And I went, oh my God, what if I had been Chinese? Like, what would this guy have done? And it, it's so... It's so ridiculous that this thing keeps happening. And it only... It usually comes from white people. Um, I think the Chinese thing has probably been worse than the last 18 months. Right? Absolutely. It just... it It's such a ridiculous question to ask. And the question is, why do you need to ask it? Like, I don't understand why that's a point of conversation for people. Um, but it's, it's, it's happened my whole life. Just where do you come from? But I don't, I don't identify myself as Vietnamese to any significant degree. Like... I, I celebrate uh, Lunar New Year with the family, and I, I enjoy Vietnamese food. Um, you know, our recent trip to Vietnam was quite enlightening. But other than that, I'm just, you know, me. So I, I don't know why it has. it's so important for other people to make a point of it. But I guess maybe that's the same thing with you and the autistic traits, is that it doesn't define you. You are Grant as a person, mm. and isolating is one thing, probably, it, it, because it doesn't practically affect your life doesn't isn't really necessary to get diagnosed yeah like i i i was thinking about as you were like at the start of your talking i was listening i promise (laughs) that if people took mental health seriously you probably also could you probably wouldn't need the diagnosis of um autism to explain why you're anxious you could just be anxious and it would be okay yeah true (laughs) but people don't treat mental health as well as they should yeah like as in the general population doesn't take mental health as seriously as physical health. Yes. Not that there's not good treatments for mental health. Yeah. There is. I get you. Yeah. That's okay. It was an unclear sentence, so I thought I'd just make it clear. That's cool. Um, yeah, just the, the ethnicity thing as well. So, so, I was thinking about this. You don't really have Vietnamese pride, do you? What do you define as Vietnamese pride? So, if someone insulted Vietnam, you wouldn't probably be insulted, would you? No, because I'm not emotionally connected to the country itself. Yeah, which is very... Like, even your parents, I once described to someone that they're, they're fond of a Vietnam that no longer exists. Yes. Because they left as refugees. Yeah, so my, my parents are both South Vietnamese. Mm-hmm. Um, for, for those who don't know how to tell the difference, if you see a yellow flag with three horizontal red stripes, that's the flag of South Vietnam. So, typically, yeah, people... The refugees uh, who, who escaped the war. Yeah. So, yeah, I was thinking about it, because I'm imagining... that Like, they have pride in Vietnam that doesn't exist anymore. Mm. So, they wouldn't have probably um, caused you to have pride in Vietnam. So, people insulting Vietnam or, you know, insulting the Vietnamese government, which, you know, your parents fled. Yeah. (laughs) It's probably not going to upset you. Yes, indeed. (laughs) The way that other people, like, monarchists might be upset, even if they've left England, about people mocking the royal family Mm. or... Um, chi- certain Chinese people who like the Communist Party might be upset about people disrespecting China. Mm. Um, so yeah, like even though you, you know, are a person of color, you don't have that pride in your homeland that you can be offended by. Yeah, and I guess the question is, should I? Like, like if the, if the so if the guy had. You know, if you'd said you're Vietnamese and the guy said, I hate the Vietnamese government, you wouldn't have cared. No, I would have been somewhat offended only because based on the racism alone. But the insulting the Vietnamese government, you're like, sure, mate. Whatever. Moving on. Don't really want to confront you. Not interested. Moving on. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's 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 funny though because I I, I as much as I uh, rally against white people doing, it, I do know that I have other Asian friends who will do it as well. But it seems the I, the where did you originally come from? Yeah, or the where did you originally come ranting from? Ranting about Asian people? <laughs> no, not that bit. Uh, the where did you come from thing? It um it it does happen. Uh, but for some reason I it, I receive it differently. It doesn't seem like a point of contention, if that makes sense. Like it's not about it's not about to turn into some racially charged tirade. It just sort of it's almost just a natural curiosity. But is that a fair assumption? What about inter Asian racism? Yeah, I don't experience much of that to be honest. Yeah, like I th- I think the Vietnam Vietnamese people are probably fine. I th- like I feel more like Philippines maybe. Mm. Like because I think a Philippines is kind of seen looked down upon by certain countries, I think including Vietnam. I think so too. I've, I've, look, I've never been one to perpetuate that myself, but yeah. I've, uh, I've, I've heard of it. I don't know. Again, I don't, I don't connect myself with that kind of idea. Oh, no, I'm just right? saying, like, if you were from the Philippines yeah. and a Vietnamese person was like, oh, where are you originally from? And you're like, the Philippines. I'm like, oh, like, did you come here to work as a maid? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Or uh, are your parents domestic servants? Yeah. Then I guess it would be as offensive. Mm. Um, but I think most of your Asian friends, or my Asians you meet, I guess, your friends probably know, asking is probably just curiosity. Yeah, yeah. But I get, But part of that must be my own assumption, just assuming that the, the basis of it is well-intentioned from other mm. Asian people. Well, you're right. There is, there is inter-Asian racism. Um, I just, yeah, I don't see it that much. Cause I get, but also admittedly, I, I mostly associate with other people who are also second generation, like first yeah. generation Australian Asian, who don't, don't, aren't necessarily indoctrinated into that kind of old world mm. belief. I imagine there'd be like China and Japan have had quite an interesting history of fighting with each other. I wonder if there's inter-Asian racism there. You don't hear much about it. No, you don't really. Mm. I don't know. Um, maybe, maybe someone, if you, if you are, uh, you know, Chinese or Japanese and you're listening, please, you know, comment. Yeah, let, let us know. know. We, we like to learn things. Like we, we do this hopefully so people can learn things, but we also do like to learn things. Indeed. We certainly don't know everything. Um, yeah, I get, I, again, the, the, the third element that I, I was often thinking about myself, cause you know, I, I, I love a good label. I love a good definition, but the third part of me that. I, I've brought up a lot is uh, my sexuality, mm-hmm. right? So I find that my sexuality doesn't really have a great deal of impact on my life. And so I don't really think about that. I don't think about, you know, defining myself as gay in the sense that obviously, you know, I love you and I'm married to you. But other than that, it I, I don't worry too much about how it influences the rest of my life. And in a way, I feel it's made me feel a bit disconnected from the, from the community at large. Um, so I'm about to start work in a transgender GP, uh, exclusive GP clinic, which is going to be really interesting. Like I'm, I'm, I, I'm really looking forward to it, but part of my motivation for doing that was because I wanted to contribute back into the rainbow community. I wanted to do more for that because I always felt like I was kind of outside of it, but I don't know whether that guilt is necessarily justified or not. I don't think it'd be justified. I, like, I feel like the problem that maybe both of us had was that gay culture and autistic sensibilities just didn't go well together. Because, mm. yeah, like, if, if someone thinks of the stereotypical, you know, weekend for gay people... Yeah. 
you know, being at these clubs and stuff. It's not what autistic people want to do. <laughs> no, that is certainly true. And, you know, we are... All, although the stereotype does exist and it, it, it occurs for a reason, I think there is a much uh, broader scope of, you know, how to be gay, in inverted commas. Yeah. Uh, which, we're, which we're understanding more and more. But, yes, certainly the more um, cliched version of a gay person is someone who is, you know carefree and single and going out and, you know, promiscuity plus or minus. Whereas that was never really on the cards for either of us. Yes. And I think that, like, early on, that was probably the pressure that I would have identified. Mm. The, why aren't you going out to these gay clubs? Why aren't you going to these gay spaces? Yeah. So, yeah, especially early on. I think we're having more you know, gay couples starting families, you know, in their 30s or whatever. Um, so there's, like, different versions of what it is to be gay now. Yes. Um, whereas I think when it used to be, you're unsafe everywhere except for the gay spaces. Mm. So if you're a gay person, you go to the gay spaces. And the gay spaces were loud, so I didn't want to go to the gay spaces. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, like, I think sometimes I talk to someone and they'd be like, oh, you know, do you go to this club and you go to this club? And I'm like, no. And it's it almost like I didn't exist if they couldn't have come across me at one of the clubs. Mm. Yeah, I, I ceased to exist because I wasn't going to the Peel or the... It was like a the meat market. Fact, market. The market. The market, yeah. The market. So it's like, yeah, I ceased to exist because I wasn't in these spaces. Yeah. Um, so th- I think that was the thing in my sort of 20s. Mm. Like, that would be the sort of rejection I felt from within the community. Yeah, that was what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it certainly was. Uh, and I certainly felt that a little bit as well in my 20s. So my my best friend is gay and he introduced me to the scene because he was... He's, very social. Like, socialising energises him, whereas me, it drains me. Um, we so, have words for that. Introvert and extrovert. <laughs> indeed. So, he was big on taking me out, introducing me to his friends, and I just, I never felt comfortable. Like, I was always overwhelmed by the experience, and I never really enjoyed it. But there was this feeling of uh, internal guilt, of, of being able to, looking and going, why aren't I enjoying this? I should be enjoying this. I am a gay man. I should be, this should be fun for me. But it just wasn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and it took me a long time to be able to accept that part of myself and just go, well, that's just not me, you know? That And that kind of gay stereotype is just not the person I define myself as. Mm. And I think some... Oh, I remember when I was still working in private practice, I had this... I think he was about 18 or 19-year-old young man who who was just coming out. And he felt a lot of internal anxiety about not living up to gay standards. So he talked about how he didn't have the right look, he didn't have the right body, and he, you know, he'd go to clubs and he'd always feel really bad about himself. And, you know, I spent a lot of my time explaining to him, actually, there is no one way to look. And then he he cited, have you seen gay porn? And I'm like, yeah, that's not the standard either. (laughs) Like... They're, they're chosen deliberately, well, it depends on the kind of porn you watch, but, you know, they're chosen deliberately to meet a certain kind of need. So, mm. you know, he kept holding himself to this really high standard, and it just yeah. ended up resulting in him losing a lot of self-esteem, and I felt really bad for him. Because, mm. you know, I think we, often in discussions about representation, we talk about role models, and I think that's part of it as well, that there may... There, it wasn't just there weren't gay role models, there like weren't gay characters in media, it's that 
it didn't necessarily reflect the entire spectrum. That mm. when you had a gay character, you know, uh, shown, they were often the stereotypical gay character, the one who would go out a lot, the one who was flamboyant or, or feminine, or you know, and that's just not what all gay people are like. Yes, and but when you're raised to think that's how gay people are, that is the standard you need to meet, then, you know, you're going to feel like you're disappointing your community, and that's not a good feeling. Yeah. And, like, I think body image is another one. Like, I think there's a lot more male body image issues these days than there used to be. Mm. I think we've kind of caught up to women in that a bit. (laughs) And I think the gay community, it becomes even worse. Yeah. As you say, you know, in the porn, they're, like, basically very fit. But that's true of female porn stars as well. Yes, although I, I remember hearing something really interesting, which is that sometimes the the better looking male porn stars will do gay porn because that's where the money is. Yes, which, I think it, it, like yeah, there's more money in doing gay porn for men than there is doing straight porn. Yeah, yeah. So the um, men in straight porn are not particularly attractive because you're not meant to be looking at them. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's like I was listening to this is a bit of a tangent, but I was listening to someone talk about like. It was a sex ed episode of The Drum on the ABC. Um, and they're talking about the the concerns about young people basically getting their sex ed from porn. Sure. Like, what the, me- what the bad messages were. Um, and they're talking about the fact that most porn is focused on, like... This is straight porn. Is focused on, like, the male's enjoyment and doesn't really show the female enjoyment. Unless it's porn made by women. Mm. But that doesn't really apply to um, porn made by gay producers if it's gay porn like mm. all the body images and image issues and stuff are there and um sometimes the unhealthy domination is probably there as well mm. um so like women making porn makes it sort of better for women sex ed wise <laughs> whereas gay men making gay porn doesn't actually help with the sex ed of gay young men mm. that's interesting yeah now, like, the other main issue, like, the main time I can think of where I felt like I didn't really fit into the gay community was weirdly... So, I was doing a survey. Like, there was this, they, did, they wanted a survey of gay people to sort of check the state of gay people. I don't know. So, I thought, well, you know, I am a gay person. I will do the survey. Um, and there was a question. I can't remember what the question was. It was something like, um, like, how many people have you slept with in the last couple of months or something? And one wasn't an option. <laughs> And I couldn't leave it empty, so I couldn't do the survey. So their data didn't have anyone who only slept with one person. Because you couldn't complete the survey unless you said you slept with at least two people. Surely that's bias. It was so weird. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, like, okay, well, I like the idea that you're trying to get a, you know, understand the entire community. But you've actually excluded part of the community by making assumptions about what the community is doing in your survey. It was bad survey planning. <laughs> yes. Yes. I mean, look, don't get me wrong. Surveys and studies will will try to focus on certain demographics and look for certain features, but that feels a little bit exclusionary, <laughs> more so than, like, unplanned exclusionary, like, just kind of an assumption, like a straight person's kind of written the survey and gone, hey, what's the minimum number of guys that a gay guy would have slept with in the last six months? Three? Yeah, three. That'll do. <laughs> Anything less than that? Not gay. <laughs> They could at least have less than two, yeah. <laughs> or less than three, just as the bottom option. But yeah, that, that, I think, yeah, not being treated like I didn't exist because I didn't go to clubs mm. by gay people I met were like, you know, 
who are you? Where did you magically come from? Because you haven't been at the club. <laughs> and the survey that wouldn't let me complete it because I didn't fit their, their version of a gay man. Mm. I probably the two I think of. Like, me and my friends, we do have a joke that I'm a bad gay man. <laughs> um, because they, they joke about the fact that, I, like, other than the fact that I'm married to a man, there's nothing gay about me. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're too nerdy. You don't particularly care about your I'm too appearance. nerdy. I don't look after my appearance well. <laughs> I don't, you know, go out to the clubs or whatever. Yeah, you don't, you don't meet their sta- their stereotypical standards. Terrible. Yeah, and people and people can know me for years without realizing. Yeah, which happened with my original group where I didn't really talk about my personal life. Mm. Um, and yeah, so people just didn't pick me. Mm. Um, so very much passing, which sometimes is, you know, a great blessing. <laughs> yes, like as a you know a white man who you know cisgendered man who passes for straight mm. i basically can walk down the street and everyone thinks i'm the majority and leaves me alone <laughs> yeah i i i don't no ha- ask me in parks like where did you originally come from yeah so are you gay or straight <laughs> like uh <laughs> what is your sexuality and where did you come from i i i had to deal with that at work mostly i still it, not i don't get it much these days but certainly in in gp land you know people want to get to know their doctor mm-hmm. and so quite often a number of patients go would see my wedding ring which i used to wear almost as like a, a deterrent i know that sounds ridiculous and kind of conceited no it makes sense it's more just like hi this is me just saying i'm married doesn't specify anything else it's just a nice plain ring um but but i still have i probably would have done it as a teacher so that the kids would stop trying to you know make rumours about me getting off with the blonde peer teachers. <laughs> that wouldn't have necessarily stopped us when I was in high school. We, there were there were married married people having affairs, so Well that's true actually like there was there was rumours about two teachers when I was at school and I told people to knock it off because he was married and therefore nothing was going on. And then he left his wife there. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Whoops. Still not appropriate. Like, it still was not appropriate for people to, you know, make rumors about them. Mm. So I, I think I was still right to tell them to knock it off. But yeah, my my reasoning that because he was married, we should knock it off may not have fitted as well, yes. considering what happened. Um, but yeah, I still got a lot of people going, you know, is how long you been married for? What's your, what does your wife do? And quite often I would just go with it because I on, I didn't want to have the discussion. I didn't know how well received it would be. They certainly didn't approach me in a neutral way. Like, uh, you know, what what kind of partner do you have? Like, it, um, yeah, it just, it, I mean, it frustrated me a little bit, but... I well, I, I was still it. working when we started dating. So there was quite a while where, you know, we were dating and my students were completely unaware. Mm. Yeah, again, though, it's a question of whether the person would ask. Like, a, a student doesn't necessarily want to get to know their teacher as a human being. Whereas... Well, unless they're having it off with the blonde pee teacher. Yeah, and unless they, and they really want to know. Unless you are scandalous, in which case they don't care. Yeah, yeah. Um, just, to, just to wrap things no, up. No, they found out how big you it would have been a scandal. They've seen us down the shops holding hands. Would have gone around the school. Mm. I wonder if it would be a big deal now, though. I don't know. Um, now... Probably not. I don't know. Like the the kids, the kids' school had a gay teacher, but it wasn't a huge deal. Like when he got married, um, a lot of the parents said it was really good for like their kids to sort of be exposed to that. Mm. Um, so, well, the ones who talked to me, I'm <laughs> sure there was the other side. They weren't. They weren't coming to me. It's like it's disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> but I do pass, so maybe they would have. Maybe. Um, but yeah, like there was a gay teacher um, and. I didn't hear anyone making a big deal of it, but maybe I'm the wrong person to judge that. Mm. 
I guess but we also have a trans student. Yeah. And us. And I did find out recently that there's another... I think I've identified another gay couple who have never made themselves as aware, so I can't out them. Mm. Well, that's if that's their choice. But yeah. I guess well, that brings us to, to the final topic I want to bring up, which is recently one of my friends, he and his husband, uh, are looking for a house. So they're looking to move from where they are at the moment. Um, and they're, they're particularly thinking about where they want to send their kids. And mm-hmm. the for one of them, the key criteria is that the region and the school they move to have to be, you know, uh, queer-friendly or gay-friendly and um, multicultural. Mm-hmm. Now... That's a that's a big ask. Like uh, you know, if you if you want to go into the inner suburbs, it's probably easy to find. But they really want to live in the outer suburbs. They want to move away from the inner city. It depends on what you mean by multicultural. I think that's less of the issue. I think it's more the the gay friendly thing. Also depends on what you mean by gay friendly. Yes, that's true. Like you know, our school would I'd say be gay friendly. Yeah, they they don't necessarily advertise it. I don't think they don't put a flag on their website or at the door. Do no, they? like the clo- the closest they get is sometimes the teachers' lanyards. Say, a uh, rainbow. Mm. <laughs> I did notice a bit of that last year. Yeah. But, you know, they had an openly gay teacher. Yeah. And their kids, you know, knew about it. So, I don't know. I think, mo- like, state schools are probably gay-friendly these days. Mm. Private schools are a bit harder. Yes. But I, I, th- I felt... I felt that it was it was interesting for them because that's a, that's a dilemma that we never really thought about. And again, it might be just the luxury of our own ignorance. Um, but when when choosing schools, I don't think that ever crossed my mind. Like I never thought, you know, it needs to be multicultural and needs to be gay friendly. It just kind of went. I want the best education for my kid. I don't really care, you know, what other factors are as long as they provide, you know, good good education. Then I'm happy, and that's it. I guess it depends if you see it as. I guess, a positive or a negative. Like, as in, are they gay-friendly or are they not gay-unfriendly? Yeah. Because we wouldn't have sent the kids to a school if we knew they weren't... If they were gay-unfriendly. That's true, yes. Um, like, one of the mothers at kindergarten was like, oh, you could send your kids to St. Luke's. And I'm like, I don't think I can. And she's like, why? Like, what religion are you? And I'm like... Gay, <laughs> and she's like, no one will care. So maybe she was right. Maybe, maybe no one would have cared if we sent the kids to St. Luke's. But that Being wasn't a Catholic something I was school, doing. by the way, for people who are. Uh, well, yes. If anyone doesn't know that St. Luke's means it's Catholic school. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so basically, maybe it would have been fine, but it wasn't what I was going to do. Yeah. So yeah, so I think I avoided schools that I as- made assumptions mm. were gay unfriendly. Yeah. If their school had been proven to be gay unfriendly, if something had happened. Mm. we might have moved them to another school. Like, you know, the same as if, you know, their school turned out to be autistic unfriendly. Yeah, We probably wouldn't have left them there. Mm. So, yeah, I think if you see it as avoiding schools that are gay unfriendly, that makes sense. Yeah, it is a different approach, though, because if you're looking for a school... So these guys were looking for a school that was specifically friendly in these kind of respects. And I don't know how many schools would necessarily advertise that. As being... Well, from, from speaking to someone who has a trans child and is looking for high schools, like, she does ask. She asks on school tours. She asks an information session. Sometimes not in front of it. Like, school tour was probably in front of people, mm. like, in front of a group of 10 to 15 people. But when me and her went on a tour of a school, she just had a word with, I think, the head of middle school or whatever, um, and just asked him. And he talked about the fact the principal was friendly with all that sort of stuff. And the school had a, like, a gay straight alliance at the school. 
So, I guess there probably wasn't any time where parents would probably ask on behalf of their children. <laughs> yeah. When the children were gay. Now, like, so there's probably no state, there's probably no time where parents are probably asking the way trans parents are now asking. Mm. But I think, yeah, if, you, if you're looking now more for trans kids, you kind of just have to ask. Yeah. Because, I don't know, I guess they could advertise, but also word of mouth. Like, if you're in a, you know, a trans parents Facebook group, mm. you'll hear about the schools that do really well during a transition and the schools that don't. Yeah. So, yeah, I think if I had heard about bad schools, bad experiences gay parents had had with schools... Mm. then I'd avoid those schools. And your friends are more linked in with the gay parents of Victoria than we are. That's very true. Their, their, their friendship group and their identity is very heavily tied into being gay, which is, mm. I, I guess, part of what made me think about them and about, you know, the whole identity thing. But I, I've had friends who don't want to, like, send their kids to gay and friend schools because they don't want their kids to get taught yeah. anti-gay stuff, mm. um, especially religious private schools. Yeah. Like, public schools, you probably have just maybe one teacher who just says the wrong thing. A bit like GP clinics sometimes have a GP that says the wrong thing. Mm. Rather than having a philosophy of anti-trans or anti-gay. Yeah. Whereas the private schools, they want the right to better teach their version of marriage. Yeah. And there are parents of kids who, like, even though the parents are straight, don't want their kids exposed to that. Mm. On that note, we'll end it there. Um, yep. There are a few little other topics that will come from this. So, you know, keep an eye out for uh, future episodes talking about how to be a good ally um, and talking a bit about religion and sexuality. Uh, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, make sure to share, uh, tag us at the Atypical Rainbow, uh, share the link, subscribe, do all the good stuff so that other people can know who we are and we can make more of a difference. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.